0: off your device. That's soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC.
0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. My name is Dwayne Osterlin, and I'm your host, and we are on to another great episode. So today we're going to talk about what I feel is a very important topic, and it's addiction in healthcare workers who are on the front lines of the COVID pandemic. And today my guest is Michael Tkach, and he is going to share some of the issues that healthcare workers are facing and how we have to really work with this from a systemic, system-based approach to be able to help these individuals who are struggling with this crisis and who are on the front lines of this uh, pandemic. I really appreciate that Michael came on and shared his expertise and his wisdom about addiction treatment and how we can help these individuals who are struggling with addiction and especially these frontline healthcare workers. My heart really goes out to them and all the work that they're doing for so many people and families and working so hard to provide the best care they can under really, really difficult situations. So if you're a healthcare worker out there struggling, I want you to know my heart goes out to you and please get support, get help, reach out for help, and just please get that support that you need. Thank you. All right, so with that said, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Addicted Mind podcast. My guest today is Michael Tkach, and he is going to talk about a really important topic. We're going to talk about addiction in the healthcare community, especially through this COVID pandemic. But Michael, thank you so much for coming on. You want to introduce yourself, tell us a little bit about you and and your work.
1: Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Very excited to be here. So I'm Dr. Michael Tkach. I am a clinical psychologist by training, and I am the chief operating officer and chief behavioral health officer for Affinity Empowering. A little bit about my background. I got into this into mental health, really from a young age, starting to look at, trying to understand why people did the things that they did. In the neighborhood I grew up in, there was uh, somebody that was going around setting fires, and I had been reading Sherlock Holmes and really just was fascinated and thinking, like, I could find clues and figure out who did what and how and all that. And that really sparked my love of psychology. And with addiction, there was a very natural outgrowth of that because in the environment around me, I saw addiction all over the place, both in family and in friends, and especially through school and high school, we had high prevalence of addiction as well as death by suicide. And so it really drew me into the mental health field. And when I started down the path, originally my plan was to do more of a private practice, and then get into right, right. Uh, You know, so that balance of business and psychology. And when I jumped into actually doing clinical work, loved it, and started off looking at different settings. So part of it was in college counseling centers. Part of it was suicide prevention and crisis centers and neuropsych assessments, and then eventually ended up at Hazleton Betty Ford doing my postdoctoral residency, and then later came on staff there in a variety of different roles. And through there, kind of looked at how can we really affect people, affect change at a a larger level. So started with the individual clinical work and then moved into teaching and then moved into more larger director roles. And then eventually moved on to affinity empowering uh, in the role that I am currently. And really thinking about how people engage in healthcare and how we can affect change and specifically with addiction but also mental health in general.
0: Yeah, and I would imagine if you have that investigative spirit like you said Sherlock Holmes, it's yep. like the mental health is a perfect perfect way to <laughs> exercise that inquisitiveness and to to understand ourselves and uh there's a, there's a lot of mystery there.
1: Absolutely. And so I psychodynamic was also the kind of the theoretical framework that combined with neuropsychoanalysis and thinking about how to not take a reductionistic approach, but instead look at things from a much larger scope. And so. I tend to think of things like almost like circles within circles and systems within systems and whatnot. And when we start thinking about addiction and really the way that I approach addiction and addiction treatment, it really thinks about how all of those factors coalesce and come into a single point to affect the individual rather than trying to be reductionistic. Right. I was brought in as a subject matter expert for a government thing with one of these states, looking at trying to look at opioids use. And I'm not going to name the state or anything like that. But there was an individual there that was a judge that wanted to reduce the cause of opioid addiction to cell phone use. Well, people are just so used to having their phones right there and that quick fix there that it leads to this and this, this, and suddenly they're addicted to opioids and and everything else. And I can understand the drive for people to want to have a reductionistic thing that they can say, okay, that's what we point to. And, And if we could just solve cell phones, that seems a lot easier than the entire system and the entire way that people actually engage in life and try to manage stress and try to do different things
0: that these are like really complex issues.
1: Exactly. And there's an appetite for something simple and an appetite for how do you go ahead and solve this? But what we need to really look at and what I try to do with affinity is really say, okay, how do we, instead of becoming reductionistic and try to pinpoint something, how do we expand the scope and recognize that, the solution is really in looking at multiple data points that are all feeding towards a certain outcome, a behavior or whatnot, but that those are all interrelated and that you have to figure out how to manage that from a larger perspective, which drives a lot of the approaches that we use. And when you actually start thinking about healthcare and substance use, you can see a lot of those aspects playing in and how it affects that ultimate behavior that we're focused on. Which would be addiction, but it's just a part of a larger system that's going on with the individual,
0: right? And I'm I'm glad that you're bringing that up because I I really want to talk about that the healthcare community and addiction and the crisis and one of the things just to kind of set this up is I was talking to a colleague of mine who he's a counselor and he works in a in a state that's heavily impacted by COVID and he is a counselor for nurses, for doctors, and he sees a lot of them in in his, in his private practice. And he was just relaying to me the impact that it's having, this pandemic is having on these healthcare providers and the deep despair that many of them are in as they're dealing with this pandemic. And watching so many people die, young people, and in some ways, deaths that could be prevented, you know, and didn't have to happen. And so I I just think this is such a salient topic. And so I'm glad that you're here and, and when we can talk about it, because I think it's just hitting a lot of people.
1: Absolutely. And I think one of the things that this kind of brought up to me right away at the very beginning when this pandemic started For my master thesis, we I looked at medical care providers providing care to individuals diagnosed with terminal illness. And what that really highlighted in the research was this sense of powerlessness that doctors who are said, here, doctors and nurses and and all support staff are said, here, your job is to help take care of somebody. And you're in a situation where with a terminal illness diagnosis, you don't have the power to change the course the etiology of the disease and instead you're just there to help support somebody while they hopefully manage it and potentially there's a small chance might get better but most most of the time there's that course of of an outcome that you know that's happening and when we start looking at what happened with covid and this pandemic and how it hit and how places were overwhelmed what you started seeing is that clinical burnout that goes along with that feeling of helplessness and then hopelessness of this is happening, it's expanding, it's going quickly, we don't fully understand the disease, we don't fully understand where it's going, especially at the time when it was first coming out, and how it's affecting so many people, young people, older people, and that sense of global helplessness that came through so much of right. the support people and frontline staff and then putting them in a situation where not only are they there trying to support somebody, but then there was the confusion about how easy is it to spread? Are they at risk as frontline workers, how, And which they were, you know, and, they, right, their, yeah. and other things that were put there and all those added stressors that go on to then contribute to this lack of feeling of power and control in a position where you normally are there providing help watching somebody get better, and instead your ICUs and everything else is overrun by people who it was really touch and go, and you, you don't know how many of them are getting better. And you're seeing so much of the same rather than variety of different types of presenting issues because there was that dedication towards trying to help those individuals. It creates the perfect environment for this feeling of helplessness and just clinical burnout. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the
0: impacted by addiction i mean these are high stress you know people doctors in the emergency room and dealing with patients lives there's there's so much stress and then you add all this to it i would imagine that creates a pretty overwhelming space
1: absolutely and so what do people do to try to manage that and how do they go ahead and deal with the fact that they're feeling overwhelmed well, the one thing that we also want to do is then take a step back. So when I said circles inside of circles, a step back. Now we also have a community that's being affected by deaths. You have... A much larger support thing so outside of work you a lot of places are shut down so your normal supports going out socializing other types of social supports that you might have as a stress reliever because of shutdowns and closures and everything else aren't there the same way so that physically being able to be social with somebody else unless it's your immediate family that you live with is is cut off and turned to virtual which not everybody's going to go ahead and say, I'm going to hang out with my friend virtually.
0: Right. <laughs> it's, 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 not quite, it's not quite the same. I know mean, <laughs> right. some benefits to it, but yeah. Yeah.
1: And so there's that shift that happens. And so what happens is you get people that then go ahead and, you know, what we we're saying turn to social media, thinking, okay, that will replace my social connection. But we all know that social media has that double-edged sword because people present tend to present either the best parts of themselves, which then give other people this fallacy about how other people's lives are going, and then that comparative thing can happen of saying, well, they look like they're having a great time and running through the pandemic super easy. I'm not. What's wrong with me? And it creates that type of dissonance that happens. Or you get people that are so caught up with fear and feeling of lack of control that they start grabbing onto any type of data point, whether it's factual or just kind of that we want to believe that this is what's causing it. Uh, Kind of, we go back to the cell phone thing, like let's blame it out. Let's blame opiate addiction just on cell phones, that fallacy. Um, You know, people will jump to that because they want some type of simple solution. So life can go back to the way that it was. Well, I think that's,
0: Yeah, I think that's cognitively easier if we can just find a solution and we just focus on that. It's not a it's not a huge cognitive load to do that. And sometimes to really like what you say, go through the circles takes a lot of energy.
1: Exactly. And so you keep kind of bringing those circles back and you realize what happened is that you have this perfect storm of so many social supports that are, are not there. And so when we start looking at addiction, a lot of times we think of addiction as a disease state that really thrives in isolation. People have shame, right. they hide it, they want to kind of downplay how much they're, how much they're using. There's this sense of I'm in this, I'm struggling with this, you know, cognitively, I may understand other people are struggling with it, but not the way that I'm struggling with it. And they can, you know, either get better or or whatnot, but why not me? And it creates this further sense of isolation, which can then drive up use and drive up how people then turn to the use of substances. Now, combine that with people looking for ways to reduce stress and disengage and how culturally... A lot of times people have associated things like, oh, just have a drink after work to unwind. Well, for somebody that's prone to addictive behaviors, now one drink becomes four drinks, becomes five drinks, and, and continues to expand from there. And what we saw during the beginning of the pandemic, just kind of globally, from April to June of 2020, alcohol sales increased over 34% to the year prior. Wow. I did not know that. Yeah. And so people were looking for a way to cope. When we've talked to certain policymakers and we started looking at the different closures, one of the things that there was kind of confusion about, about was the restrictions that were put on closures for places that could go uh, do to go alcohol or alcohol stores versus some of the other places. And it ultimately came down to that there was a public health decision in a lot of places to say, okay, let's leave the supply of alcohol open so that we don't have to worry about people going through detox and going to the hospital so we could save that for pandemic beds. And so we'll, we'll go ahead and, and create it you know kind of this ease of access so people can continue with the addiction and in a subtle way it creates more pathways now there's not a right or wrong with that because you have to look at the larger system and say okay that was a very tough decision what do you do with that what the downstream effects of that are though is that we see stuff like this where alcohol consumption and purchasing goes up higher and then you start thinking about the overall impact that that has where the one thing that we did see socialized, where people might not be hanging out normally, doing Facetime or everything else as frequently, there was a rise in virtual happy hours and virtual get-togethers. In that way, where it was like, okay, yeah. let's unwind and drink at home and do that. Drink at
0: home, a little bit alone, but a little bit on the screen, and and yeah. still that feeling of of separation. And and I'm imagining for kind of going back to these these healthcare workers who are under this immense amount of pressure and and stress because they have all of this, especially with this third wave going on now, Yes, that I'm wondering are, and I don't know if there's any research on this, but are some people who are not, you know, weren't necessarily in pre-pandemic times susceptible to addiction, falling into addictive processes, because of this immense amount of pressure, I've heard from some healthcare workers that I know that the pressure to be there and perform, I mean, to to go home almost feels overwhelming because they know these people need help, but they have to sleep. I mean, they have yeah. to do that. and And it's just completely overwhelming.
1: So one of the things that, we don't want to downplay in this situation. And we think about this, especially with healthcare workers, is the potential for traumatic experiences. So when you have somebody dying, when you're with somebody that's that, if there's that feeling of potential threat to your own life by being there and whatnot, and the influence that traumatic experiences doesn't necessarily need to be all the way to the place of a PTSD diagnosis, but people have they sometimes call it big T trauma and little t trauma, where you have these traumatic events that people deal with in a variety of different ways. When we start looking at how being in a frontline environment and feeling that pressure, it's not a far stretch to say that there is a chance that people in those positions, and I don't want to diagnose anybody that I haven't met or anything like that. Right, right. It's Just not, generally it's a far jump to look at There are those traumatic experiences where people are talking about loss. They're talking about those experiences and those pressures to keep going that leads towards burnout. And then you think about how there is this overlapping Venn diagram of prevalence between traumatic experiences and substance use. Because how do I turn off those feelings? How do I turn off that sense of guilt or shame? And how do I go ahead and disengage from it when people are trying to look for something simple or easy? And the way that our brain looks, at data and processes information rather than thinking about, okay, if I go ahead and I use alcohol now, this is going to cause potentially a hangover later or anything like that. We don't process information that way. Typically we're thinking in the moment, how do I stop feeling what I'm feeling immediately? How do I gain a sense of control? well if i can go ahead and have a drink or if i can go ahead and do something use something to change my feelings then i can have some immediate relief i can have some immediate prop. and the brain says fine we won't think about anything longer term just how do we stop this feeling in the moment and it leads towards this path where people that might not have had these addictive type behaviors or used in quite the quantity that they're using tend to do that because it's giving them a sense of control. I can control the fact that I'm picking up something to drink or I'm picking up the substance to use and I'm doing it and I'm modulating my mood where I feel otherwise this complete lack of control in my environment and work because of this pandemic. And so we have a lot of anecdotal stories and we've got a lot of self-reports, but with a recent review of the literature and the research out there, there hasn't been a lot of research studies that have actually looked at the specific prevalence of substance use, specifically in healthcare workers mm. during the COVID pandemic, yet and it might just be too early with the data to come out. It might just be that I think from an IRB standpoint, trying to go ahead and say, okay, let's throw out let's let's find a hospital that's going to go ahead and let me go sample their their patient population during the pandemic when they're already stressed, then and say now in addition, do you want to join a study? Um,
0: right, that's probably
1: they're, they're overwhelmed.
0: It's not going to happen. This will be. Mm-hmm. Probably something right. that has to do. We have to do post. Exactly,
1: but what we see anecdotally is there definitely is an increase of report of people saying that they're using um, both that haven't used as much before have first seen increase, but then also those self reports of addiction behaviors increasing for people that have predisposition towards addiction.
0: Yeah, it almost seems like a, a perfect storm. You have all of this stress, and you have nowhere to go it's hard to get support. I mean, for a lot of these nurses and doctors and and working there, they don't want to go home to their family Mm -hmm. because they're afraid they're going to bring the virus back. So they go, you know, I've heard some of these nurses living in, in a hotel or living in a trailer and not seeing their kids, not seeing their family because of of that fear of of bringing it and, and legitimately because they're watching people die from it.
1: Exactly. And you've got, this then fear that happens that creates further isolation and further disconnect from family and social support so even those people that are especially in a situation like you're describing who would normally have at least some social support with their immediate family they're doing this they're having the stress the added life stressor of then saying okay i'm finding somewhere else to live i'm going ahead and setting up a second household i'm going ahead and managing that and there's all these additional financial and life stressors that pile up so that you think about their stress threshold and where they're at. And once they cross that line, the body goes into that fight, flight, freeze and looks for either, can I fight something? you know, Can I get irritable? can I, you know, Do I freeze? Do I have these depressive responses and just wait for the, the threat to pass? Or do I get this anxiety and have this flight response feeling like I need to escape from it? And ultimately, when we see somebody in that state, they look for, how do I gain control? Do I either go ahead and find something where I can be irritable? Do I pass the stress on to somebody else? Do I go ahead and find something that I can do that helps, you know, makes me feel like I'm waiting out the stressor and helps there and I got that social support? Or do I find something I can run from? Or that last part that's most important is are not most important, but often turn to is, what do I have control over? And when these situations happen, people tend to look then, you know, one of their primary response patterns, but then they also look for, how do I gain control? And when we try to go to that reductionistic thing, that's what tends to lead us towards saying, okay, what's the simple solution? Not what's the whole laundry list of things that I can do so I can eventually feel better in a couple of weeks, but what's the immediate right here and now? And...
0: Sometimes that's just a substance.
1: Yep. And, and it's like, I'll deal with it tomorrow. I'll deal with it later because right now I just got to get through today. And when we start then looking at what are the resources and supports out there, a lot of places that were doing any type of outpatient and a lot of places that were doing inpatient with COVID had to look at are we going to stay open? Are we going to close? Are we going to reduce those services? You've got a lot of places that have primarily done person-to-person type supports and even places like AA and whatnot who have been primarily in-person shifting to to do what they can on a virtual setting. And as much as we love to think that therapy is therapy and support is support, it is a different skill set to do it virtually than to do it in person. And when you have a group of people that have not done the virtual support suddenly shifting to, 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 to the virtual support, there's a learning curve that goes along with it. And it's nobody's fault. It's we have to adapt and we have to adjust. But there is that learning curve of how do you connect with somebody virtually? And right. it's not as simple as just, oh, we're just changing the medium. And you'll if you were good at in-person therapy, you're going to be good at, at virtual therapy. Yeah,
0: not, necess- not necessarily. Not necessarily. <laughs> so you have this whole shift in care that these people who are struggling need. And, and I mean, it's just, as you're saying this, it just feels like this compounding issue that's happening, you know, for these healthcare workers. And another thought I have is, is the stigma with addiction and, and being a healthcare worker. Yes. I mean, you know, you've got fear of your licensing board. You've got fear of judgment, competence, all of these other things. So getting help has its own risk or perceived risk.
1: Absolutely. And I think that's, you hit upon one of the main things that creates this barrier, both for doing research with healthcare workers, but also when thinking about the barriers that healthcare workers face when trying to enter treatment. So most healthcare workers, when I've had patients that are healthcare workers and my work with people, one of their main barriers is that fear of if I go to treatment, I could lose my license and then I lose my livelihood and I can't support my family. So you think about that whole situation. Now we talk back to that person that's that's working and potentially trying to support a second living location because they don't want to bring COVID back home. Suddenly they're, they're falling into substance use and they're wanting to get help, but they're afraid now if I go to get help, Am I going to potentially lose my livelihood and my my income? And then how does that further affect my family and look what I'm doing? And that sense of shame that can come along with that. And rather than understanding that there are different measures out there, so many states have pretty much every state has kind of an intermediate agency that works with their board, the licensing board. So if somebody does want to go ahead and get treatment, they can work with this agency which Affinity does this for uh, between 40 wow. and 42 states. And what they do is they help manage the person's recovery. So basically there becomes an agreement and it's usually a time period of how long somebody's going to engage and are you going to go through treatment? And if you are going to go through treatment, what are the recommendations from your provider and then how long are we going to continue to monitor? And then it's a, from there, it's a compliance and follow-up and saying, okay, are you following through with your appointments? Are you doing most of them? Well, almost every state requires random drug tests to say, okay, let's just show that you are being able to adhere to your treatment plan. And then with those, we can go ahead and have you continue to work And as the agreement with the licensing board, either it does not get reported to the licensing board unless there's compliance issues and you're not following through, or if somebody drops out of the program, depending on your state. And so there are those resources there. Right. And when you also then start thinking about an overwhelmed working individual who's working during a pandemic and thinking, okay, now I got to find the intermediary agency, I've got to go ahead and get help. And I have to trust that the person that I go to get help is going to refer me there instead of like reporting me to the board, which most almost every provider should be working with that intermediary agency rather than doing that. So I wanna help remove that fear from healthcare providers. They are supposed to go ahead and help you figure out how to navigate that.
0: And that there is support out there. There's there's support and you can get it
1: if you Absolutely. need it. Yep. Yeah. And it's there and and people are understanding. And the other thing that we run into is that fear of if I go into treatment, I'm a medical provider, I know what the effects of substances are, I know the dangers of the health dangers and the health risks and everything else. People are gonna say, Well, you should know better. And they're gonna there's right. that kind of judgment that comes along with it. And at the end of the day, when we look at any behavior. Any type of healthy behavior or non-healthy behavior or whatnot, what we realize is that knowledge about whether it's good or not, or whether it's helpful or not, isn't enough to influence change. Fear works as a short-term motivator, but it, it doesn't allow people just to shift and change or do anything. And that's the human condition if change right. was easy there would be no there would be no psychology or mental health
0: profession they would we just be you wouldn't even need this podcast <laughs> exactly <laughs> <so>. darn it <laughs> yeah if change was easy yeah but that's that's so i think just people recognizing that alone that you know just knowing is not enough that's not how we work as human beings like you said i i love what you said it's more complex than than a simple Just a simple little thing. I mean, these are big systems. We're complex. Our social structures are complex. It takes thought and time to to think about it and to come up with a solution.
1: And I think the one part that I would want to also then stress is because we understand that that it's complex and it takes a lot of stuff. So, talking from the professional side, so a lot of good attending family members or good attending significant others or, or support will think that it could be something as simple as, I'm going to give you the knowledge, I'm going to go ahead and tell you one thing, and suddenly that's going to override all of your behaviors and whatnot. Un- unfortunately, that that does not tend to work. In rare circumstances, and in some situations, it may work for some individuals, but for the majority of people, simply having the knowledge and simply having somebody confront them with something isn't enough to go ahead and inspire change. Additionally, often when we start thinking about it, there's more support and more kind of attention and care that's needed. Now you get these good intended family members who then think, well, I should be enough as a spouse or as a significant other to be their support to manage this. And I've also worked with a lot of those family members. And the the key thing to, to, to really think about there is that as a care team, there are multiple people on the care team. It's not just one individual. And that one individual isn't working 24-7, which often the family member feels like they need to. And so right, they are right. getting this this experience of burnout and then frustration that grows towards the individual that can compound and then lead towards more addictive behaviors because they're trying to deal with the shame and the pressure of that, of managing not only their own experience, but now how somebody else is responding to that. But the good part, and the hope that we have with this is because we understand how all of these systems interplay with each other and how complex it is, we have been able to design treatment programs and care teams and different things, not just Affinity, but other a lot of providers. Right, right, so yeah. We look at this and say, how do we actually provide more holistic support and thinking about all these areas of support that an individual needs so they can have that recovery experience so they can get better and they can see improvement.
0: Right. And, and it takes a village, right? We yes. we need all those connections to get the support that we need from all these different directions. Cause there's all these elements that are going on that if, if they aren't addressed or they're only dressed, like you said, only one little part of it, it's most likely not going to be successful.
1: Right. And then you think about it too, we also have to think about the culture and the much bigger picture of the context in which people live. And when we start looking at things, there is a part of the brain and to bring in the, the neuropsychoanalysis part of it, just to kind of tie in how complex it is for somebody to have behavioral change just on their own or you know this isn't just about will this isn't just about oh if you just had enough willpower you could do it we have to think about how the brain works and processes information to understand why a system of support is important so when we think about culturally and contextually when we start looking at the prevalence of alcohol and substance use on television and other places we start thinking about the fact that our brain has the mirror neuron system, which is in the motor cortex, and originally it came out and everybody thought it could do almost everything. But really what it's used for, (laughs) when we really break it down, it's goal-directed behavior. So if I'm watching a basketball game, I've never seen basketball before, and I see how somebody dribbles and shoots the ball and, and whatnot, I can get a general idea that if I was playing basketball, I'd want to dribble the ball and put it through the hoop. And that's really what the mirror neuron system does is it helps you do observational learning and get a general idea. Now, when we start looking at things like media where people are using alcohol and whatnot, one of the things that activates the mirror neuron system more than anything else is goal direct behaviors. And it actually is when somebody goes up and takes a sip and does something. So if you're watching somebody drink and suddenly that's their way of relaxing and they're taking a sip, there's this, Understanding of then projecting yourself, thinking, okay, that's what I should do to help relax. So then we start thinking about media and we start thinking about all these other contexts that are out there, these reinforcers that are saying this is the behavior that people should have. And people might not have an immediate trigger, it may build and it may be stress, and there's this unconscious right, right. processes that happen. And suddenly they hit that threshold, and there you go, they're back into the, the addictive behavior. So we have to think about this is where that social support comes in and has been so important because you're seeing other people do other types of behaviors to do stress relief, to do other types of things that then are getting encoded and and you're remembering and you're thinking, okay, yeah, I did see that, you know, where somebody drank on TV, but I also saw ABC and D and all these other physical activities, or, you know, we went for a group walk or we did this to help process stress.
0: That's like creating that healthy community to mirror back to you healthy behaviors and that structure.
1: And when you think about healthcare workers who are in that kind of confined bubble, often working really long hours, sometimes double shifts and everything else, their environment and their input is basically, I'm seeing medications, I'm seeing other things forced to change people's moods and their experiences. I am seeing a high stress environment. I'm seeing people that are in this really precarious state, some of them are dying, other of them are in very serious health conditions, and then now I'm isolated from my support and everything else, your world gets a lot smaller. And so it makes more sense than why people are saying, okay, I want to escape from that. How do I do that? And what are the substances that I can use to give myself a temporary emotional break from this? And what we need to look at instead are what are the resources out there to help them feel connected? How do we create that community environment? How do we, if it is digitally, how do we make sure that those are as engaging as possible? And they're showing those different things. Like, I'm not going to go ahead and FaceTime and go jogging with somebody because that'll make both of us motion sick. But right, <laughs> but right. trying to figure out those types of ways to still have a community connection, even if there is that virtual distance there.
0: And creating that Support for, yes. for these individuals. Oh, Michael! I, I mean, I think we could go on and on talking about this. I just want to thank you for coming on and, and and sharing your wisdom about this, and and coming on to the Addicted Mind podcast. One thing I I like to ask is if maybe there is a a healthcare worker listening to this podcast. And they're struggling with the overwhelm of the pandemic, and maybe they're struggling with some substance use issues. What do you want to tell them? What do you want to say to them?
1: I I would say that there is help out there. There is hope. There are programs out there that understand, that are designed specifically for healthcare workers, that understand the challenges that healthcare workers have with engaging in getting help themselves um, that are sensitive to those concerns such as licensure and um, how this may affect your livelihood and that help and hope exists and that it's just a matter of being taking that step and reaching out to get that
0: help just reach out just do it get, get the support
1: absolutely and you're not alone a lot of people are struggling with this and a lot of people are getting help and seeing seeing improvement.
0: Awesome. If people want to reach out to you, they want to know more about you, where where can they find you? How can they get a hold of you?
1: Yes. Uh, So they can go ahead and uh, so I'm at Affinity uh, Empowering and i am very happy to provide you with my direct email address i don't know if you want to put that in notes or anything I can like put that all,
0: i can put all that in the show notes sure, if you I give me saying. all that information Let, let's i will do that, do
1: that. Rather
0: than reading <laughs> off the totally website address
1: and stuff like if that if you want to get a hold of
0: <laughs> yeah if you want to get a hold of michael just go to the addictedmind.com and under the show notes and this episode you'll you'll find all his contact information Michael, thank you so much for coming on and and the work that you do and helping all these people out there.
1: Fantastic. It has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, everyone. Thank you for listening to the Addicted Mind podcast. As Michael said, all of the links and contact information for him will be at theaddictedmind.com under the show notes for this episode. So check that out. And if you've been enjoying the Addicted Mind podcast, please share it with a friend or rate and review us in iTunes. That really does help get the podcast a lot of exposure and I really appreciate it. And thank you so much to all of you that have done that. And if you want to continue the conversation online, join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook, type in the Addicted Mind podcast, click join. All right, everyone, have a... Wonderful rest of your day. And I will talk to you on the next episode. Oh,
1: hey, it's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast. And we
0: are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. Forget the rosé all day cliché. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities.
1: And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol.
0: We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health,
1: lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to two sober girls podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.